So the Christmas season is upon us, right? And uh, every year I find Christmas more difficult uh, to celebrate uh, because it is now so secularized beyond recognition. Christmas is supposed to be uh, the coming into the world, indeed it is the coming into the world, of our God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is meant to be a welcome party for God. That's the way when I think about Christmas, that's what I think. A welcome party for God. But instead, for many people today, it is simply a time to party. Like there is no tomorrow, right? It is about exchanging gifts. It's about binge drinking with friends. And that's quite sad, isn't it? Because because of that, Many of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ find ourselves increasingly tempted to ignore Christmas altogether, to just keep calm and let it pass on quietly. And we can't wait, perhaps, for January. Now, I think there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. You know, it's, it's not Christmas isn't written in the Bible like you must celebrate it. But I think that attitude misses the opportunity for us that Christmas presents for us to grow in adoring Jesus and in sharing him with people around us. So over the next three Sundays, what I want to do is I I want to help us celebrate Christmas by looking at what the Bible teaches us about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we'll do is we'll go through Matthew's account, Matthew's record. Um, Matthew was one of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He He used to be a tax collector until the Lord called him to follow him, and he's compiled this historical record for us. And I just want us to walk through it over the next three Sundays. Today we are looking at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to verse 25, which our brother Millie just read for us. The, the key truth that uh, I think that this passage is teaching us, uh, that Matthew is teaching us in these verses, is that the birth of Jesus is our salvation from sin. That's the main truth I want us to think about today. The birth of Jesus is our salvation from sin. We All of us are sinners against God. The Lord Jesus Christ is God who put on our human skin that first Christmas to save us from our sin against God. Notice there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew starts this record with an announcement of good news. A child is being born. He says this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Let's just pause there and recognize that the birth of a new child is always a wonderful occasion. It's always a wonderful occasion. This is true even when the baby is born in very difficult circumstances. When I was young, my uh, older sister fell pregnant at the age of 16 years old. I remember how upset my mother was when she discovered that. But after a few weeks, uh, it was a time of joy for the whole family because we discovered she was expecting twins and everybody got so excited. Mom seemed to have forgotten the, the whole thing that had happened. We are all now looking forward to the birth of the twins. There is joy at every impending birth because every birth brings new hope for the future. The new hope is because no baby born is the same. Everyone is unique. Every child is special. They have their own future. They'll have their own impact 
on the world. But there is here in Matthew recorded a birth that is more special than any other baby that has been born. It is the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ, we should be clear, is not the surname of Jesus. It means the Messiah, isn't it? And the word Messiah means God's chosen king. You see, long ago, God promised the people of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, that he would send the Messiah to come and to save them from their sins, to save them, to save us. Because through the Messiah, we would come to know uh, God. He would come to be our king, to rule over the world. And Matthew here is saying that God has now fulfilled his promise. But there is a problem, isn't there? Uh, because baby Jesus is entering the world wrapped in scandal. Let's, let's read on verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, I always struggle with that word, uh, to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We are told Mary is betrothed. In Mary's culture, it means the only thing that Mary and Joseph are waiting for is the wedding and moving in together. But tragedy has struck. While they have been making wedding plans, God the Holy Spirit, we are told, has entered Mary's virgin womb and is knitting baby Jesus inside her. Now, we should note in passing here that our God is a God who overrules the plans of his people. As followers of Jesus, this is a hard thing for us to accept. We have our own plans about how our life should be. We make careful plans about how it should turn out. And it feels like God often intrudes and turns the, our lives upside down, doesn't it? And, and it can leave us anxious and frustrated when that happens. But beloved, we are learning in this passage that when God turns our lives upside down like that, he, like he did for Mary, he does it for his glory and also for our good. Because the story of Christmas is that the divine disruption in Mary's life in the end proved to be a blessing not just for her, but for Joseph and for us. I wonder this morning, is God doing a Mary to you at this very moment? Do you feel God is somehow frustrating your plans? Disrupting them in some way? But Christmas, first of all, is saying to you this morning, trust the Lord. Father knows what he is about. Our Father knows what is good for us. Now, we need to understand that Mary has not been impregnated by God. Yeah. What is happening in Mary's womb is a new human creation. A divine creation even, in the sense that it is God himself bring about this. In fact, the literal reading of that word, now the birth of Jesus Christ, should be read now the genesis of Jesus Christ. Because what we're seeing in Mary's womb is a second genesis. Just as God breathed life into Adam, he's breathing life in Mary's womb to bring about the person, the human nature of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that God is Trinity. That is to say, he exists in three eternal persons. God the Father, 
God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The three persons are in their full right gods, independently God. But they are not separate. They are one. The three persons are one God, not three gods. That's the Trinity. And what we're being told here is that God, the Holy Spirit, the, the third member of the Trinity, we might say, has entered Mary's womb and is creating new human flesh and uniting it with the divine nature of God the Son to create one person, Jesus. Jesus is one person with two natures. He is 100% human. He has all Mary's DNA. He is a normal male Jewish baby in every sense. At the same time, baby Jesus is 100% God. He created all things, including the womb of his mom Mary. And all the things were created for his glory. This is the mind-boggling, earth-shattering truth of Christmas. On that first Christmas, the Almighty God, the creator of the ends of the earth, became a fetus and grew inside Mary's virgin womb. The Bible is saying, look, when you look at the nativity scene, if you're going to attend one at your school, it hasn't been cancelled by, uh, by our new rulers, medical rulers. If it's still there and you attend it, you might see a dramatization in the school play of the nativity scene, right? Well, when you see a little Mary there, pregnant, she's carrying Almighty God in her womb. And immediately Christmas is reminding us what a wonderful person our Lord Jesus Christ is. He is the almighty God who is humble. The God who stoops low to become a fetus. The infinite provider of things who freely, willingly and joyfully chooses to be fed through the umbilical cord attached to a fragile teenage man. That's the God of the Bible. And there is no one like him. People say all the gods are the same. No, they're not. Because there's only one true God. And he's a God who's mighty and yet humble. To say it is mind-boggling does not even begin to describe it. And I think it's not surprising, therefore, that when Joseph hears the story, he cannot believe it. Look at verse 19. What happens when the husband-to-be finds out? And that husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put out that is married to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The key word here is shame, isn't it? The pregnancy of Mary has brought shame to herself and Joseph because this is not meant to happen in their culture. Remember, in their culture, being engaged is not like today. It is really as close as you can get to marriage. All they are waiting is for the celebration. All the families have agreed on it. Everything is happening. And so what has happened has brought shame to both of them. It shouldn't be happening in their culture. Mary shouldn't be found pregnant. But it is more than that here. The problem Joseph is struggling with is the reason Mary has given. She is unapologetic, isn't she? We'd imagine. She is saying this baby is from God. 
I have not been unfaithful. This baby is from God. It's a gift from God. Now, can you imagine hearing that from your wife to be? <laughs> it is like the nonsense we hear today about men saying they are pregnant. <laughs> right? It is worse than a joke, isn't it? You wouldn't accept it. Just as we don't accept that nonsense today. So Joseph um, has done what any man in his shoes would do. He has decided to divorce her. And to his credit, he's doing it quietly for Mary's sake. But God is a merciful God. Our God is merciful, isn't he? He knows our limits. He knows our weaknesses as human beings. He knows it is mind-boggling for Joseph to accept Mary's story. So the Lord God goes an extra gracious mile to help Joseph. Let's read on verse 20. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. To put it simply, the angel is saying to Joseph, Oh, Joseph, your bride is carrying a gift from God in her womb. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Go ahead and marry Mary. And the news gets better, doesn't it? We read on in verse 21. What does the angel then say? And she'll bear a son. And you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Joseph has just found out that he has a new job from God. He was going to be a surrogate dad to the long-awaited Savior, Jesus. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yahweh being the name of God in the Old Testament. The angel is therefore saying, Jesus is Yahweh saving. Notice the angel doesn't say, God will save. He actually says, Jesus will save because Jesus is Yahweh. The one true God has now come to save his people from their sins. Who are his people? Well, in the context of this passage, it is first of all Israel, isn't it? Jesus, particularly in Matthew's gospel written specifically for the Jewish community, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. He's their promised king. The, the, the one Israel has waited for, as we read there in Isaiah 11. But as we read on the rest of the New Testament, we discover there's even a deeper and the broader, and we might even say truer meaning to this amazing phrase Matthew uses here, his people. Because the people of Jesus, in the fullest sense, uh, is anyone, Jew or Gentile, indeed we might say, is only anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, who turns their back on the life of sin by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to save them from sin. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Indeed, we might even say there's even a deeper meaning to that, isn't there? Because Jesus has come, as he reminds us in John, to save those whom the Father gave him before the foundation of the world. Israel, therefore, are truly his people. But the key point is this, is that Jesus has come for anyone who repents and truly comes to him. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Bible is reminding us here that the biggest problem everyone has 
is that we are sinners against God. That's the biggest problem you are facing. This is what the Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 1 to 3. Psalm 14, verse 1 to 3 says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's what the fool says. He says there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And then God concludes, they have all, all of us, turned aside together, they have become corrupt. There is none in the world who does good, not even one. The Bible is saying you are not a good person. The Bible is saying you are a sinner, regardless of your age, regardless of your circumstance. The Bible is saying there is no person here without sin. All of us, by nature, are rebels against God. And the Bible is saying our rebellion against God has left us morally corrupt. We are sinful in our desires. We are sinful in how we think. We are sinful in how we speak. We are sinful in how we act. To put it simply, every one of us sat here this morning is an abominable person to the core. Including myself. The Puritan Richard Sibbs puts it like this. The human heart is like a dungeon where nothing is to be seen but horror and confusion. Why does the Bible reach such a conclusion that all of us are morally corrupt? Well, the reason why every human being is like this is because every person is born in this world, cut off from having life with the God who created us. This is the legacy of our sin against God in the Garden of Eden. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected God, all of us are born into this world without God. You see, some people think that human beings are like people who are half injured. That's what some people think. They just need a small helping hand to get them spiritually better. You know, get in touch with the divine, come to church a little bit, they'll be all right. But beloved, the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that human beings are more like corpses. Everyone is born with absolutely no life of God in us. We are born dead in our sin. When you visit the cemetery, it should remind you that's the state of the human race. We are like a man who has fallen off the top building uh, in Canary Wolf. There's a posh restaurant at the top of Canary Wolf. Not because I've been there. I've read it in the daily now. The tragic thing about it is that Code Dizor, some, some fancy name like that, the name of the restaurant, you might, you know, look it up. Tell me if, when you go there, I'll be interested to come along. Um, <laughs> uh, Post restaurant on the top of Canary Wharf. But the tragedy is that people go there quite often to commit suicide. So loads of suicides happen there. They just go to the top, they have a nice meal, and they fall down commit suicide. But we are like that, isn't it? Because when a person falls from the top of Canary Wharf down, the med police just says it's splattered everywhere. And that's the state of human beings. Fallen from the heights of glory we were created. Splattered down. We are born dead now. There's no life in us. 
Human beings are totally incapable now in that splattered spiritual state to reach out to God. And indeed, at the core of our being, we don't even care about God. Our sinful nature is totally opposed to God. Oh, my dear friends, look, because we are born spiritual dead, even the good things we do are a stench before God. All the wonderful things we do, loving others, helping others, wearing our, our you know, um, let me change the illustrations, following the COVID rules, right? All the wonderful things. All the rules to the letter. All of that. Because we are sinners before God, there is stench before God. All the things we do to be mindful of others, right? Coming to church, all of these things, God cannot be pleased with them. Why? Because they are perfumed with our sinful nature. We are already dead before God. You see, in order for God to take delight in what we do, we must be without sin. That's right. We must be without sin because God has no sin. But it's not just being without sin. We must have his life in us. In our hearts. But we don't. We are dead in our sins. And because of that, we are all under the judgment of God. We are by default hated for eternal suffering in hell. All of us are born heading to hell. But here's the good news of Christmas. Christmas says God has come to save us without any effort from us. The birth of Jesus is our salvation. Let's read on. Verse 21 to verse 23. She will bear a son, Matthew says, and you shall call his name Jesus, the angel is speaking, for he will save his people from their sins. And Matthew tells us in verse 22, all this happened. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is saying to us, beloved, God kept his promise. Baby Jesus was born so that through Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sin and have new life with God. Let us note in passing again here, beloved, that God always keeps his word. God always keeps his word. Whatever God has promised us, in his word, he's going to do it. No matter how impossible it looks. You know, many people promise us to do things, don't they? But in the end, they let us down. It's not just politicians. Uh, all of us break promises. If you're, if you're a parent, you know you break so many promises to your children. Right? And at work, we fail to keep our promises. Everywhere, even at church, we fail to keep our promises. Sometimes we really try our best, isn't it? We really try our best. But our humanity fails us because we don't have control over ourselves. Let us run the universe around us. Thank God. Thank God he is not like us. God keeps his promise, not only because he is faithful and true, but also because he is all-powerful. He is the all-powerful almighty God. God is able to keep his promise because he does not have to depend on anyone else for help to keep his promise. So whatever God has promised, he is willing and able to do it. And if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, remember this truth. God has promised you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
he's still keeping his promise. Take him at his word. Christmas is reminding you that you serve a God who keeps his promise. Beloved, don't doubt in dark times what he has made plain in the light of his word. He is the God who keeps his promise. And we have every reason to trust God to keep his promise because Jesus has dealt with our sin that separated us from God. How did Jesus deal with our sin? Well, the penalty of our rebellion against God is what? Death. Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That is what you and I owe God. We owe God our death. Not just physical death, spiritual death total. And eternal suffering in hell forever. That's what we owe God for our sin. But thank God the Apostle Paul does not end there, does it? He says, But the free gift of God is eternal life in where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. When Jesus was born, he grew up. He lived a sinless life. And when the time came, Jesus willingly allowed himself to be killed on the cross for us. And the death of Jesus was not simply about the Lord Jesus dying physically, as, as, as important as that is. What is more important is that when Jesus died physically, God poured on Jesus all the eternal wrath that we deserve to suffer in hell forever. Our Lord Jesus carried in his body and saw the full weight of God's punishment that we deserve. He willingly suffered the wrath of God on that cross for us. Our Lord Jesus, you see, knew the burden of our sin before he entered this world. He knew all the wrath of God that was going to be unleashed on him, but he still chose to come. He still chose to be born among us in order to bear the wrath on the cross in his body for us. What amazing love for us. The love of Jesus opened his chest, didn't it? To take in his heart the infinite bullets of God's wrath which were fired at us. He as it were on the cross put the body between you and the wrath of God. That is the wonder of Christmas. The birth of Jesus was the start of his serving work. We say that the birth of Jesus saves us because without Bethlehem there is no Golgotha. The birth of Jesus is our salvation. But in order for us to receive and benefit from this salvation that Christ offers us, well, we must welcome Jesus in our hearts. We must indeed surrender to Jesus as Joseph does. How does Joseph respond to the message of the angel? Look at verse 24 to 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, Mary, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph is obeying God and is taking on himself the responsibility and the cost of raising Jesus as his own son. And he's taking on himself the shame of Mary. 
What Joseph has done is costly. Think about it. You can already hear the town gossip. Have you heard what foolish Joseph has done? After all of this, he's still going ahead to marry that thing. It's hard for Joseph. But Joseph is surrendering to Jesus, isn't it? That's what, saying, that's what we read here. He surrendered to Jesus. And that is what Christmas demands of each one of us. It demands we surrender to Jesus knowing it will cost us. Now, this is a bit that people have a problem with. No one has a problem with Jesus being our saviour as long as we continue in our sin. No one has a problem with that. What we do not like is what Joseph understands. Joseph understands that to truly have Jesus as our saviour means death to self. We must surrender to Jesus. We must welcome him, even suffering for him. And of course, this is hard, isn't it? Following Jesus may result in loss of friends. It may result in a loss of a relationship. It could make you unpopular at school. It changes your priorities in life. What is important to you? Indeed, it even changes how you spend your money. So it's hard. And as a pastor, I have seen many people come so close. So close to becoming true Christians. So close to following Jesus. They have understood everything. They would even say they love Christ. So close. But they never truly turn to Jesus. Because they find in the end what Jesus is asking too difficult. They take Jesus only half-heartedly. And of course, he's God. You can't take him half-heartedly. And so in the end, they realize that. And they never become true believers. They find death to our rights difficult. There's always some issue in their life that acts as a barrier to true salvation. Maybe you are in this position this morning. You know the Bible is true. You believe Jesus is God, but you're still weighing up whether to surrender to him. And I just want to say it is right that you are thinking hard about this. Because friends, many who claim to follow Jesus are not true Christians at all because they simply live for themselves. The churches are full of people that are deluded and are heading to hell. God does not want you to join them. He wants you to be truly regenerated, truly born again. He wants you to truly count the cost. And he wants you to know that the cost of having Jesus as your savior from sin is worth it. The benefits of your life infinitely outweighs any costs. Count the cost, but know the benefits outweigh the costs. What are the benefits? You will now have God living in you when you become a true Christian. And you will be living in God. You will have access to all his power to help you in every situation. You have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You will now never have to face life alone anymore. Jesus will always be there to guide you, 
to nurture you, to provide for your needs. You will have his peace. And then there are the eternal blessings, aren't they? The eternal blessing that awaits you beyond this world. And they are too great for us to imagine or even put into words. What will it be like to live and enjoy God for all eternity? To see the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. To experience beams and beams of light and grace in his company. It is beyond imagining, isn't it? And consider also, beloved, what you will be giving up. What you will not experience as a result of being with Jesus for all eternity. You will be giving up hell, eternal torment, and suffering. You don't have to suffer forever. Instead, what awaits you is glory like never before. So yes, I said to you this morning, count the cost. And accept the cost of following Jesus. Thomas Boston, the Puritan, says this, No sin of yours will ruin you if you surrender to Christ. And nothing, listen to me, nothing will save you if you do not. There is simply no alternative to Christ. There is no salvation outside Christ. So, oh dear friends, come to Jesus today. Not as a, we don't want a tick box. Not as a tick box exercise. God will not have that. Give him your heart. Repent of your sin. Hand over your life to him today. And I encourage you, if you've done that, if you've truly done that, I encourage you to show it by becoming baptized. Commit yourself to this new life in Christ. Stop being ashamed of Jesus. Show him you are proud of him. You are thankful to him by going through the waters of baptism. You won't be taken half-heartedly. You must do it wholeheartedly. What about those of us here, briefly, who are already trusting in Jesus? What should we do with the birth of our Lord Jesus? This salvation from sin. Well, I just think two, two quick things I just want to share with you, briefly, and I'll come to an end. First of all, for us who truly know Jesus, First of all, let this truth fill you with new adoration of Christ our Savior. Come, let us adore him. What a wonderful and gracious and glorious Savior our Lord Jesus Christ is. What a Savior you have. The eternal Son of God came to save you, beloved, in Christ. The sinless one entered this world to endure the penalty of sin and to stand in your place for you. The infinite one became an infant for you. The maker was despised for you. He was crucified and buried for you. He rose from death for you. He ascended into heaven. He sat at the right hand of God for you. He is interceding for you. He is coming for you. Oh, beloved, let us adore him. Adore Jesus the Savior this Christmas. Do not let the material blessing. Oh, there are wonderful things going to happen this Christmas. Family, presents received. Thank you. Put me down. Right? That's great. And I don't want that in my focus. I want to feast my eyes on Jesus. Let us grow in feasting our eyes on Christ. 
Meditate afresh this Christmas on his birth that saves you. Enjoy it. Hear it. Adore it. Don't fall asleep on it. Adore it. Test it. Look upon our Savior's love with new amazement this Christmas. That's the first thing. Come. Let us adore him. The second thing is that let this truth of our salvation in Jesus comfort you in whatever situation and difficult challenges you are facing this Christmas. Maybe you have an impossible situation in your personal life. It's just mind-boggling. It might be the divine disruption I was talking about. It must be totally different. It may be in your, in your personal life. It may be in your family life. It may be in your place of work. And perhaps, if you have been honest, you just feel anxious about the future. You don't know. And Christmas is already feeling a bit pointless. You're trying to get excited, but it's hard. Because life is just bearing down everything. It is easy, isn't it? In the middle of all of that, for us to whisper, and I've done it before, so I'll confess it. It's easy for us to whisper to God, Lord God, I need more than Christmas. Where are you in my life? It's easy to do that. But Jesus is saying to us in this passage, Christmas is enough. Because I'm right here. Christmas is showing you I'm right here. I have put on your flesh to be with you. Even now in heaven, I have your flesh. I wear your flesh. I have not taken off my humanity. I am God with you. I am Emmanuel. So whatever situation you are in, beloved, at this moment, you are well provided for in Jesus. Your life in Jesus is not powerless because God is now with you. You may feel alone, but you are never alone. You may feel, but you are never alone. God in Jesus is, your, is with you every moment. Because this is why he came on Christmas. He came as your living Savior. And because God is now one of us and for us in Jesus you no longer need to depend on yourself. Your Savior already has your back. So keep trusting Him. And tell Jesus this Christmas that He is enough for you. Let Christmas therefore deepen your dependence on Him. Rest afresh in the care of your loving and eternal Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.